welcome again to the So House Therapy podcast. This is a podcast that demystifies, debunks, and destigmatizes what happens in the therapy space. I'm your host, Karen Conlon, and today we have an amazing guest, Dr. Kieran Grossman. Kieran, this is such a special treat for me, and it's going to be an amazing treat for all our listeners. I would love for you to introduce yourself because I have so many words that I prefer for you to introduce yourself and just tell us about you. All right. Um, well, probably one of the most important things about me is that I tend to be fairly terse. So I'm going to try to expand my answers, but I am a clinical therapist in private practice in Brooklyn. I am queer. I'm transmasculine. I'm polyamorous. And, um, I guess those are sort of three of my, those are some facts about me. Today, one of the things that we're going to talk about, obviously, is therapy and the, the kind of things that go on in the therapy space for the LGBTQIA community. Not only is there help out there, but there are people that really understand all the nuances of your relationships and of the things that you think about, the things that you need to consider. Why don't we start with that, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your own journey? Yes, I'm, I'm, hopefully you'll help me to remember um, <laughs> what what terms it is that I actually used. But I know that I used transmasculine, um, which means that I was, I'm AFAB, which means assigned female at birth. So when I when I was born, they said, oh, what a what a lovely little girl you have mom and dad. And um, I was I was a tomboy. I was someone who came out as um, as queer as being a dyke in you know at 18. And I sort of lived as a dyke um, as a pretty masculine presenting woman up until about five or six years ago. Um, and then five or six years ago, I started taking a low dose of testosterone. And a couple of years after that, I had top surgery, so I had my breasts removed. And um, I think I have passed pretty well since then as, as a dude. And so I've had the experience of having lived both as an adult, as a masculine woman, and then also as someone who I think most people will just see as, you know, as a man. And so that is part of my lived experience. Being 18 years old, let's just start there, right? Because that's pretty young. I mean, yes, illegally, you're an adult, but developmentally... You're still in these early stages of your life. How did you know? What did you feel? What did it feel like as you were growing up, knowing that you were presenting as a girl and maybe having the expectations of acting like a little girl, but knowing that something just didn't quite fit? I don't know that I was expected to act like a little girl. Um, I do give my parents a lot of credit for giving me a lot of lee leeway to be a tomboy. Um, you know, I loved sports and I played tons of sports. All of my friends growing up were were boys. Um, that's not totally true, but I had I had a lot of like, you know, boyfriends who I used to play baseball and football with. And I don't think there were huge sort of gendered expectations. My parents were hippies, so they, they were pretty cool about about that, which I which I feel grateful for. And, it, you know, it was interesting because I was actually like I never thought when I was little that I was a boy like the the category tomboy actually worked totally well for me. I have, I never felt like a woman either. Um, so I felt, but I felt like the category of Butch Dyke also worked for, 
for a long enough time. And I think it's really, I'm 43, I think it's probably going to be impossible for younger listeners to sort of like recognize how terrifying it was to contemplate a trans identity up until probably 10 years ago. Like I was at Brown, probably one of the most liberal environments in the world. And I wrote my, you know, I wrote my senior thesis um, on transsexual autobiography. And I just remember like weeping because I was reading one story about a AFAB person who transitioned and whose partner stayed with him. And that to me at the time just sort of seemed like incomprehensible. Like it sort of, it seemed like there was going to be a choice between you can either I can either live sort of my truth as a trans person, which I wasn't out to myself yet, or but you know, or I can continue to to be a butch dyke, and that felt way more comfortable. So th- what you just said, um, I wasn't out to myself yet, right? I mean, most yeah. people think about coming out as this external sort of process that you go through to present yourself to the outside world, but what I'm hearing from you is that being out to yourself, this is, there's an internal process first that happens. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that means, being out, coming out to myself. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as an undergraduate, I wrote my thesis on transsexual autobiography. Um, For my graduate work, when I got my doctorate, I did um, research. They call it me-search, right? Which is sort of the joke, because we're all just trying to learn about ourselves. But there was an online platform called Second Life, And so I did research on gender swapping in Second Life. I think at, you know, when I came out, there was nobody in my life who was like, oh my God, we never saw that coming. But for me, I think it was very, very clear that my transition to, you know, a more trans, being more trans identified was very dependent on ending a relationship with someone who I think, and I, I could be wrong about this, but my sense was that she was very committed to me being, continuing to be sort of a woman mm. in, some, in some way. And so it wasn't until that relationship ended that I actually had the psychic space to begin to imagine that I could, that I could be differently in the world and still be loved, still have, you know, still have a partner, still, you know, that it wouldn't just be back to that, like, oh my God, like I'm trans and therefore have to spend the rest of my life alone. Was that, I mean, and that, that breakup, that particular breakup, did that, was that disappointing? Did that give you any sense of, oh no, you know, what if this is what it's like, you know, with future relationships? I mean, I think I will always wonder about that in my relationships because my, like my, my codependency runs deep, right? My ability to sort of try to perform in the ways that I think my partner wants me to be is that's sort of something I have to constantly guard against. And, you know, I've had a lot of effective psychotherapy since that time that's allowed me to be way more cognizant of that pattern and way less willing to reenact it. But it's it's still there. But it also was interesting because it was sort of when I was in the process of breaking up with her, I started take, you know, one of the things that that allowed me to do was it allowed me to go to the doctor and say, hey, I'd like to experiment with taking testosterone. Um, And I also experimented with instead of using she pronouns, using they them pronouns very, very briefly. But also suddenly it was like I was a grown up, but I was taking testosterone. And so I had the social skills of like an adult, but the sex drive of an adolescent. And that was like super fun. Like, oh, my God, like that was the funnest, like the funnest year or two of my life. Right. Like it was like, wow. So that was like that. That was great because suddenly it was, you know, like that was super, super cool. 
But then what it was interesting, what happened is that short, like a very short period into my transition, I, people can't see me, but I look, you know, like I look pretty much, I think like a dude. And there was this pretty early shift in the way that I was getting related to. So I was still dating primarily queer femmes and pretty early in my transition, it went from sort of being an, like an us against the world thing to like, suddenly I was like put in the category of like, man, enemy, and I was getting all of these projections on me that I had never experienced before. Um, and that was that was super intense. And that was super that was terrible. Like that was not that was not fun. I would not wish that on on anyone. And I certainly don't want to sort of continue to to live that. Can you tell me about that? That's really, really interesting. Um, what 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 did you hear? And what was it like for you to, you know, to have lived and be in both on both sides of the fence? I mean, I mean, it's hard because I was, you know, very much sort of like a separatist dyke. Like my I do not particularly love men. And yet having had the experience of living as a man and sort of getting anger, this hatred directed at me, you know, it's like you don't want to be the apologist, right? You don't want to be the like hashtag not all men. Yeah. 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 And yet also it didn't seem to me like I had changed a huge amount over over what was really probably six months, six to nine months. And yet the amount of sort of anger that I was getting directed at me was um, was horrible. Like, and it's, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't everyone, but it was certainly a sizable minority of the women that I, the, of the women that I was dating at the time. So it was, it was, it was that, that sort of hostility was coming from your own community, that the community that you initially felt safe in. Yeah. That, that had been sort of the place that I had hung my hat for you know, two decades at that point. When these projections would come up, how, I mean, how did you handle it? What did you, you know, what did you say? Did you put your therapist hat on? I mean, it, did you try to empathize and say, you know, I've been there? I mean, what do you do? Because, you know, there's a part of us that can put on our therapist hat, um, but then there's this other part of us that's just human and we feel, you know, we feel the darts and the, the uh, and, and the pain. Um, and it's hard to then put on your therapist hat and not defend yourself and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm still me. Yeah, I think in um, typical avoidant fashion, I tended to end those relationships fairly, fairly shortly after I sort of felt like I was um, receiving these projections that that didn't really feel fair to me. And, and ending those relationships, do you in hindsight look at that, you know, that was the right thing to do because I get to do that. And it's my choice to not allow people who are going to attack me into my life. Or do you sometimes look back and say, if I knew then what I know now, this is how I would have responded. You know, it was also within the context of the of a deepening of another relationship. And so I had the contrast between sort of what it felt like to be sort of like the object of people's projection versus the object of someone's sort of like care and love. So yeah, I mean, I don't, to me, I don't like wish like, oh my God, if I had just put in more work, we could have worked through it. That that may be true, but I don't know. I, I'm also aware that there are people for whom I wasn't receiving those projections. And, you know, with one of one of those people that's continued to be a very beautiful relationship. And so I think I prefer to minimize the amount of projection that I'm sort of receiving you know, thank you so much for for answering that so honestly and authentically. I 
I mentioned that because oftentimes, regardless of how you identify, we're put in situations where we feel like we need to defend ourselves with that. We need to, you know, just put up with it. The thing is that you don't have to, right? I mean, there's a difference between being able to have a discussion, agreeing to disagree and getting bullied. You mentioned before that you were being avoidant. And it's interesting because when you said that, in my mind, what I actually thought about is self-protecting. We, we see ourselves sometimes in, in, the, in the worst light, right? And we, we tell ourselves the story. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can also hold that as well. I think there's, there's the way, right, in which we want to sort of appear a little humble or something like that. So we can, you know, we can, because that seems to me very similar, this sort of self-protective versus avoidant. So glad that you're tuning in. This is just a quick reminder that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not replace treatment by a licensed professional. Ready to hear more? Here you go. We could shift gears a little bit now. Also talking about the other ways that you self-describe. Let's start with AFAB, right? Because that's the first one. That's one of the first ones that you mentioned. Assigned female at birth. How does that differ, if it does, from transgender? That's a tough question. I'm not sure... I mean, because presumably you were also you are also AFAB, right? Right. Because right. when you came out, like they were like, "Oh, this is it's a you have a baby girl." So yeah. you were assigned female at birth. Um, the difference is that as I as I grew and changed, I said, "Wait, I don't think that's that's right." Whereas, and I'm making an assumption, but you said, "Yeah, that that fits." Got it. Okay, great. Okay, queer. You know, we hear, but what is it really, what is it that we need to know about the term queer, what it is and what it's not? Sure. I think queer is at this point a pretty umbrella term. And it may be at this point that it's sort of expanded beyond so, like, it's expanded so far that um, it's kind of has lost any sort of meaning. Like I was talking with a with a friend the other day and she was like, I stopped using queer once the fashion industry started talking about things being queer. <laughs> you know, so it was just like... Um, this sort of this co-optation, I mean, queer used to mean, right, like it meant non-heterosexual. So it was sort of like lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, sort of anything that wasn't just sort of sort of straight and narrow. But, you know, I think with the co-opting of sort of queer, queer identity, so people that are my age, you know, we sort of were like, ugh, we're not gay and lesbian, we're queer. And what I see now is the younger kids being like, I'm not queer, I'm gay, you know, so it's, yeah. I mean, we're, all, we're always using language, I think, to sort of try to just, you know, like differentiate ourselves from from earlier generations. And so that's one of the ways that it's playing out right now. And so and then and you also made a distinction between gay and lesbian, right? So, yeah, yeah, I think gay gay tends to mean at least when I was growing up, gay men much more, you know, gay men and lesbians were were lesbians. I think that's different now. I think the sort of the millennial queers are using are using gay for both men and women. In terms of transsexual, transgender, those two terms, again, this is these are these these are two terms that amongst the cis world are often confused and some and you know and used interchangeably. And also cis. I keep mentioning cis and I'm not explaining it. So how about that too? Well Karen, please explain explain it for us. So um, cis is basically refers to me. I am an AFAB who identifies as a straight woman. Is that explaining it 
Well, that's my experience of how I explain it. Okay, I think cis actually is um, a scientific term that's in contrast to trans. And so cis means that the gender identity that you, like the gender that you were assigned at birth fits with your, in, or the sex that you were assigned with at birth fits with your internal felt sense of your gender. So you can have cis, you can have, for instance, queer cis femmes. So people who were assigned female at birth, they think, yeah, it's great that I'm, you know, that I'm femme, that I'm, that I'm a woman, but they're queer because their partners are females or women. See, I didn't know that. See, I made this assumption that, you know, it means, oh, okay, so you're attracted to the opposite sex and you're, I, that's how you identify. And this conversation that we're having really, I think it's, for me at least, it's really shining a light on the fact that it's, it's not enough to just be, say that you're open and that you are accepting. What is it that we need to know? What are the kinds of things that we need to be asking ourselves and maybe even not afraid to ask someone in the LGBTQ community? It's hard. It's hard to ask these questions to you because I feel myself very, you know, wanting to be very careful to not say the wrong things or not offend, right? Um, but at the same time, I'm incredibly curious and I want to know. And then the other side of me is kind of wanting to tiptoe and say, am I asking, am I asking something that maybe I'm overstepping, where I'm overstepping? And I don't, I don't think that that's such an un uncommon experience, really. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's it's super common. And one of the reasons we, as we formulated this, right, was sort of originally, Karen, was this idea that it would be like a white trans man talking with a cis woman of color. And we could sort of talk, share our experiences, and we could sort of ask those questions that we want to ask, but because we've been, you know, taught, and I think rightly, that you don't want to sort of make the make the person who's in the minority position be the person who educates you. And at the same time, there has to be spaces where these questions, where we can ask these questions, because otherwise, how are we going to learn? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How does it feel to you to have me ask these questions? I mean, I think these are questions that anyone who knows me would not be surprised by the answers to. I, as I imagine sort of potential patients listening to it, I'm like, mm, that, that feels you know, that feels a little exposing. Yeah. Um, and also, I, you know, probably 50, 60% of my patients are queer themselves. And obviously, the other 40% are fine enough, you know, it's not, it's not an issue. Um, so yeah, I think I, if, if it wasn't recorded, I would have there would I would have no qualms about about these questions whatsoever. I wanted to turn back a little bit to the terms because I don't did I don't think we finished the transgender versus transsexual. Yeah, um, to me, transsexual is a much more medicalized term. So it is something I'm not going to say there aren't women currently um, who identify as transsexual women, but I think that's something that tends to be older older people who transitioned a while ago. And even transgender, although it's not, it's certainly an acceptable term, um, is a little tiny bit old fashioned. I think mainly what now it's more like just trans is for self-identification and also just sort of as a, you know, as a better way of talking about um, trans people. What's the biggest difference that you have seen in your experience of these the different generations and what you're seeing, maybe in terms of terminology or awareness of how we got here. I mean, I don't think it's a, a difference in terminology. It's again, I, I said it before, but I can't, I don't think it would be possible to understand for someone who is, let's say, under the age of 
30. Yeah. What has happened in the last 10, 10 to 15 years in terms of acceptance of, of sort of trans identities and in, ter- in terms of just like the level, like, I don't know how to express how beyond the pale that seemed for me. And again, I was in very liberal environments. You know, if there was going to be any place where that was going to feel like an okay thing to do, yeah, it was going to be in the spaces that I was in. And it just was like the barrier to entry in terms of like claiming a trans identity was so high just in terms of family alienation, in terms of like, am I ever going to be able to even be employed? You know, am I just going to be harassed walking down the street? Um, And, you know, I think that and also the whole, you know, this whole non-binary thing is something that really, you know, is very, very is very, very new as well. And I don't think it's because there weren't non-binary people um, 15 or 20 years ago, but I think it was sort of just, you know, if the idea of being trans felt too alienating, like the idea of being like, yeah, I'm neither a man nor a woman, like would have just made people's heads explode. So there were people that did it, like Kate Bornstein, who's a very, very famous trans elder. You know, she's, she's been doing that for years, basically. But there was much more of a push towards, you know, a sort of gender expression within the binary. And so this whole non-binary middle space is also just sort of like mind blowing, I think, for those of us who who didn't have that as a as a space that even really seemed like it was a possibility. Absolutely. And that's another term as well. Right. Non-binary. Like you're saying, it's it's relatively and I'm you know new right when we look at the these new things that are these new terminologies these new descriptions that give people more freedom to to identify to self-identify um to self-label it is something that continues to grow um and then again for this reason that I think we all need to continue to become aware of pronouns you mentioned pronouns before right so Oftentimes now, right, we'll see it. What does that mean when people have pronouns next to or under their names? Um, So it started out with just the idea that not everyone has access to medical interventions that might make their gender um, super obvious. And so it started out as just a way of, you know, saying this this is who I am and this is how I want to be referred to. and that's that's very new. Like that's happened only within the last ten years. And now it's sort of something that you know. So it was a lot of queer people did it, and now it's something that I think people also do just as a way of an ex- of expressing allyship. Exactly. So yeah. trying to trying to normalize that, where there's a sense of everyone should we shouldn't just assume that if someone is femme presenting that they have she her pronouns, or if they're masculine that they have he him pronouns. And so people can use that as a way of. Um, yeah, just normalizing it for people for whom there might be a, a difference. And then the other term also that I think is really important for us to help people understand, polyamory. What is polyamory and what is, in your opinion, one of the most important things that we need to know about polyamorous relationships? Yeah, um, so polyamory just means many loves and it is people for whom they have the capacity um, and to some extent the desire to have more than one um, relationship at a time. You know, it's interesting because I think for me, polyamory is actually a little bit of a misnomer. Um, I have a girlfriend, now fiance, who also has a wife 
and she, that person also has a girlfriend. For me, it's the idea of being able to really be in like two committed relationships, like seems actually not something that I'm up for right now. So I'm polyamorous in the, in the sense that I'm open to exploring more than one sort of serious relationship. Um, but it's different than, for instance, Sarah, my, my girlfriend, who has both a now a fiance and a wife and has been pretty committed to, to both of us, um, or I'd say very committed to both of us for over six years. So when we talk about relationships, just, I mean, any relationship, there's always, you know, some of the same issues come up, right? Boundaries, communication, honesty, openness, and also, you know, protecting, because sometimes we want to protect the other person from feeling hurt, right? I mean, what are, what are some of the things that come up in polyamorous relationships within those, within the context of those of those things, for example. Yeah, I think I think healthy polyamorous relationships look remarkably similar to healthy monogamous relationships. Um, mm -hmm. The difference is that it can include more than two people if everybody involved agrees with that. I think you know some of the skills for people who are polyamorous is a willingness to sort of stay in difficult conversations. Um, I think one of the things that happens a lot in monogamous relationships is there's sort of like an agreement of I'll pretend like I don't desire anybody else and you'll pretend like you believe me and we'll just get on we'll just sort of get on with our lives <laughs> or if everything's not okay but you know the, it, the sort of in in monogamy sometimes the solution is oh shit if if this does if I feel like I'm attracted to someone else that's an indication that there's something wrong with with what I have with with person a as opposed to just like, yeah, this is this is what happens. This is you know, this is what happens when when you're when you're human. This is what happens in the context of long-term relationships, and it can actually be worked on. It can be talked about. It can be you know, jealousy will come up, but it just because something makes you jealous doesn't mean okay, the other person has to stop immediately. I would say that's actually probably one of the one of the biggest differences is there's a a lot more sense of yeah, what you're doing doesn't feel okay. Let's figure out if there's a way where you can keep doing what you're doing and it will and make it feel okay for me. I, I think one of the things that I'm also wondering about as well is, you know, decision-making in the relationship about, let's say something like that is, you know, are th if there are three people in a relationship, are three people always involved in, I don't know, the emotional decision-making and discussing the jealousy and discussing the boundaries? Or do we sometimes shift Definitely, it's okay to have boundaries. So I think that can be something that, um, especially couples who are newer to polyamory and are opening up their relationship, there's sort of a sense of, you know, I want to know everything about your conversation with with the new partner or something like that. And it's totally okay for that for that new partner to say, hey, you know what, like, actually, I, I don't want you to know, I don't want the other person to know about this. So those, those kind of boundaries, and you know, it's, it's dependent, but my experience is that there is often a lot of talking that goes on sort of, so you have the pivot, right? Which, which would be for instance, and there's a lot of, a lot of talking that goes on between me and a lot of talking that goes on between and her wife, but much, much less talking that goes on sort of with, with the three of us together. Right. Right. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it takes a lot of, um, an incredible amount of, um, communication and an immense amount of maturity. I think it takes an immense amount of maturity to do it well. I hesitate to, to sort of, 
I think there's a lot of people who like to imagine that because they're polyamorous, they're in some way more enlightened. And I want to just sort of really, it's really important to sort of um, check that because I've seen a lot of shitty behavior, both in monogamous relationships and in polyamorous relationships. So I don't, I don't feel like either, either sort of gets a pass, you know, in terms of we do this well, because I think honestly, we have a culture that actually does relationships pretty poorly. So Kieran, thank you so much for your openness and your willingness to educate, to share the knowledge, to really um, help to increase awareness around things that we need to know about. And this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? That we need to at least be aware of in terms of our, our friends in the LGBTQI community. If there was something that you could leave us with, something that you'd like to say that would help to either de demystify, debunk, or destigmatize therapy, what would that be? What would you like to leave us with? I mean, I think that, you know, I think us queers were pretty good about therapy. I think we tend to be a community that embraces therapy. And I certainly think that's true for polyamorous folks as well, because polyamorous folks tend to be very committed to uh, personal growth and sort of using their relationships as ways of maintaining sort of their growth. Yeah, I guess, I guess for me, um, I don't think I've ever had a straight therapist. And I think that that is totally fine. Like if you want to only have queer mm. therapists, it's going to be a little bit harder to find. And also, um, we're, we're out here. Um, and I can give you a couple of resources if you want a link just to for people to make that Slightly, slightly easier. Okay, yeah. So people, for people who need to use insurance um, and are in New York State, IHI, which is the Institute for Human Identity, has almost entirely LGBT therapists, and the straight, ther the few straight therapists that they have are are very, very <clears throat> queer allied. And then Manhattan Alternatives is a great resource for people who are wanting therapists who are queer, polyamorous, and kink affirming. And that's also for people uh, primarily here in New York. Thank you so much. This is um, this is so incredibly helpful, and I have I've absolutely learned so much. I mean, I thought I knew a lot, but <laughs> guess what? I just learned a hell of a lot more. So thank you so much, Kieran. Where can people find you if they'd like to uh, be in contact with you? Is there a website, social media, email, yeah. whatever you want to give us? Yeah. So I presume you'll put this in the show notes as well, but um, you can email me at, uh, let's do website first, um, kgrossmansid.com. So it's a little bit hard, but it's K-G-R-O-S-M-A-N-P-S-Y-D.com. And that's my website. And that'll link you to my phone number, to my email. Um, so that's probably the best way. Or you can call me at 917-687-8445. Well, thank you so much, Kieran. Um, everyone, Dr. Kieran Grossman. And uh, again, all this information is going to be in the show notes. And uh, as always, if you want to know more about our practice or this podcast, please be sure to head over on to cohesivetherapynyc.com forward slash podcast. There you can check out the note, the show notes, um, find resources, links, and how to get in touch. Thank you again for showing up today. 
I hope you learned as much or more or even more than I did. And I can't wait to see you next time when I once again ask, so how's therapy?